think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 102 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 103rd episode. I'm Laura Carbonell. I'm Aitzen Rainville. And uh, this is going to be kind of a casual holiday mailbag episode. I, w- I normally put like some Christmas music here or something. We'll see if I uh, am sufficiently motivated to do that in uh, what I euphemistically call post-production. So can I, I, the, the entire time we've been doing this, I've always wanted to have sort of a, a, a daily show, Moment of Zen style um, clip that the episode fades out to. Uh, really dating yourself with that reference. But you, you've never, I think we did it in like four of the early episodes. Yeah. Um, and in fact, there is one that we're supposed to have queued up for this episode, but I doubt you're going to put it on. We'll see what happens in post-production. What was it supposed to be? The, uh, the Christmas message from our dear liberal Ontario liberal leader. Oh <laughs> yeah. I'd forgotten about that. Uh, man, that was rough. Uh, yeah, no, I, the, the reality is that typically once we've, we've stopped, uh, recording, I, uh, my, my window to do it is usually like that evening if I want to have it up for the next day. And, uh, frankly, I just, uh, usually have other things to do in the evening, like, you know, dinner and all that. So I do, I do enjoy when professional podcast people talk about like, like there recently there was a controversy on Twitter about, uh, and we're all controversies, uh, a unnamed MP trying to hire someone to cut and edit their podcast for like 125 bucks an episode or something like that. And they're like, this yeah. would never come close. And they're like, well, you know, if you do it in one take and you don't really edit anything and you just sort of roll with it, you know, that's fine. You just, you just, yeah, that, you just take 125 what, what bucks for really trying to say You just got to lower your if standards. You can, if you can produce, yeah, no, I mean, what I would say is if you can produce a, a grade A triple digit podcast with just no preparation or editing necessary then good on you you know that's that's what i would say i it's just an intrinsic competitive advantage of the product we offer um all right so this this was our mailbag episode we reached out and for uh for a few days my worst fear became realized that no one would send emails and uh i would have to make up questions and pass them off as listener emails um, but it turned out you're just really bad at using Gmail and hadn't set up the email forwarding properly. And in fact, people wrote in. What do you know? Yeah, they did. Yeah, the the reality there is that you set up your forwarding, but then you also have to tick a box to do it. Uh, and I thought by setting it up, I was golden. In some fairness to myself, I believe I did this like while rushing out the door to do something. What it might have been to go get groceries or something. So I just didn't give it the normal due diligence it would get. But, you know, such is life. Um, so with all of that said, uh, we're going to start going through some of these questions. Uh, I, I didn't bother to attribute them to the people who sent them I to know, us. I know, I saw that. Uh, it was disappointing. You want to give little shout outs to the listeners, but no. You know, I would say if you're someone who sent us a question, you, thank you've you even for, paraphrased for being some of listener. the questions, which is just horrendous. No, no, these are all, uh, oh, well, just literally okay. one. Just one has one. been paraphrased. Oh, it's at the top of the list. The one... It's the one I'm seeing. Okay, well, all of the others are, are all golden. Anyway, so we're going to break into them with uh, number one here. What is your favorite Canadian political ad of the last 15 years? Do, do you want to answer that one first? <sighs> to be honest, none of them really stick in my memory as memorable. And in some fairness here, I, I can't say that I have 15 years worth of ads to think of. Because I've really, you know, I moved back to Canada in 2010 and uh, didn't really care about politics until like 2014. So in that sense, my, my pool is quite shallow. I would say one that always cracked me up was uh, in the 2016 Saskatchewan election. There was one where Brad Wall gets a text from someone and then like nods like, hmm, good point. <laughs> and his nod was just very funny to me like he just did it in this like very over-the-top theatrical way and had this like very like hmm yes expression on his face that was very funny um i i would say that one just because it it really just amuses me on a kind of inscrutable <laughs> level but yeah that that's mine <laughs> okay so let let me respond perhaps more fulsomely um than you i mean the first thing that came to mind for me was a whole bunch of atrocious ads not just over the past 15 years but sort of stretching back further than that 
I feel like... Okay, well, now you're just cheating. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. just wait, hold on. <laughs> just wait. I, I've actually... In, I'm going to back up here and say that I've actually written a, uh, a piece about uh, ads, political ads from the 1950 New Brunswick provincial election that I will list in the show notes if people want to read it. No, no one wants to read it. It, it exists online on on the web and it's a, it's a good one if i do say so myself so i mean i think everyone has this sort of collective memory of various bad political ads um in sort of my contemporary history the first one that comes to mind um is the jean chrétien is this the face of a prime minister or whatever that ad was um the next one that comes to mind is the the liberal anti stephen harper like tanks in the streets ad or soldiers in the street ad and then sort of more recently like those ones were like uh, you know bold um they they picked a direction even though sort of broadly are condemned now um but since then sort of bad political ads have just been like awkward politicians um, all of sort of Andrew Shear's ads come to mind. Thomas Mulcair's awkward smile comes to mind, um, etc. I don't know that there's any sort of of that that stand out for me. Um, one that stood out is more about the anecdote about the NDP killing a hamster than anything. Was there NDP hamster <laughs> wheel ad? Um, <laughs> which I, I'm not sure if it was one or two hamsters. Well, Tian, who whom amongst us has not <laughs> accidentally <laughs> killed a small rodent? <laughs> I don't even know how you kill it. You all you needed to do was film a hamster running on a hamster wheel, which is something they ostensibly enjoy. Uh, but yes. somehow that well, that uh, maybe, hamster maybe, maybe ended they were up dead. maybe they were in the middle. Maybe they were in the middle of a big spaghetti supper with a glass of milk and had wandered downstairs. <laughs> you know, who among us, Etienne? That is a very uh, a very personal Etienne attack against, against <laughs> to my childhood. Um, Etienne can tell this story if he and, wants. And it wasn't a hamster. <laughs> I'm not going to do it, it for him. It wasn't a hamster. It was a guinea pig. And I grieve Snickers every day. Um, so in all honesty, the best ad that came to mind in this... I mean, there's sort of a recency bias uh, bias in my own head for this that I'll acknowledge is I think they call it like the real change now ad, which was sort of the one that the liberals bombarded uh, on the airwaves in 2015 towards the end of the campaign. And it was really just like a JT pump up ad, um, but it was very effective. They, they had really gone out of their way to make it. They did a big push to have a big rally somewhere in the GTA. It's all the same to me. Um, to have this huge rally and they you know filmed that and then quickly flipped it into the ad that they closed the campaign on um and i think it was you know it was very good at showing momentum and it was ultimately an ad that you know more or less was instrumental in uh or at least material to their winning in 2015 Um, yeah i mean part part of my difficulty in answering this question is that i don't really watch tv so i don't see youtube ads is sort of what but i've got ad blocker man i don't yeah, even see those fair. yeah i i just try to see as few ads as i can so what i would say sense, is i feel like we're two to three generations behind american political ads where like every time there is you know an american gubernatorial well less the gubernatorial races but a lot of the, the congress races have like really dope ads with helicopters and muscle cars and things that just like Canadian politicians do not get away with. Well, the, the difference there is that they just have to cut through in a way that like, because each politician really has to have their own brand where here you're really running on the party brand and only the parties are running advertisements. So in fact, you don't really want to push the envelope too much. You just want to hew as closely to that core message as possible. Yes. Uh, and of course, like there's just less money. So there's just less money to throw around with experimentation, with, you know, defining, etc. Yes, and... So it, and it's not a bad and, thing. <laughs> and the only people really running television ads are the leaders in Canada. Yes. Um, man, I'm just realizing we're talking about the Americans, which is a mistake. Uh, we're, not, we're not supposed to do that on this podcast. No. Um, where in the U.S., you know, there's however many hundred people doing high-level television production ads. Um, in Canada, you have the leaders. Provincially, television ads are barely a thing, if at all. I mean, they are, but... Except for that Brad you know, Wall one I mentioned. V- very low scale. 
Um, and then local MPs are not running TV ads. If you're running TV ads as an MP, you're goofing it up. And if you're spending money on your any type of video ad, you're probably goofing it up. So, yeah, I think that's uh, probably fair. You want to spend uh, it on so social media, and you want your intern to record it. So yeah, that's yeah. how it goes. And and like I said, if uh, you're interested in ads from the 1952 New Brunswick provincial election, I I will have an article for you. So there you go. All right, that's that's ten minutes uh, on the first question. There you go. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna like rip we through this. Space. Oh, that's fine. Uh, would you recommend the Master of Political Management program at Carleton University? What about any of the political parties' summer internship programs? Well, as it happens, uh, we are both MPM grads, and I would say we would recommend that program pretty much unreservedly. From my perspective, at least. I don't know if you have any data onto that. Yes, um, I would 100% agree. I think it's a great program. It's in Ottawa. Um, it is a reasonably small program, 25 to, I think the number is growing, but 25-ish odd students. Um, you know, o- over the years in the Ottawa bubble, the program's been around for, I want to say, seven or eight sort of generations or cohorts. Um when you look around the hill, you're in, you increasingly run into MPM grads in various uh, lobbying in different uh, consulting firms or in various ministers' offices or party political apparatus. Um, so it's certainly a great program in terms of the network that it helps tie you into. I, I can certainly say this podcast would not exist if not for the MPM. Indeed. It brought that quite quite we, we would never so. have met each we would other not know each other if, yeah. if that were the case we would have perhaps lived across the street from each other walking walking by each other you know every day but constantly yeah every day but not yeah that's uh, that's urban life for you uh and Chen, you actually had done a summer internship program through the conservative party at one point so i think there's another question maybe there's not another question i'm not sure i see it immediately um I have a lot of advice to give around how to get jobs in Ottawa. Um, okay, so I, I will just read that question right now and you can fold your sure, answer Sure, let's it. do that. I'm interested in working as a political staffer one day. Any tips given I don't have much political or public experience at all? So the number one thing, and um, let me apply this both to the public service and to political staffing, um, is you are best able to break into the industry as a student. Um, the, the student to career pipeline is incredibly well established and it becomes very, it becomes substantially more difficult when you're not a student, um, because you can't lean on the internship programs, the party internships, um, bridge people into their careers, uh, very effectively every single year, particularly if you're in the later years of a undergraduate degree where you're able to. Uh, just step out, finish your degree, and then continue working on the Hill. Um, But also on the public service side. To get a public service job is sort of a catch-22 because you need public service experience. Um, So the only way or the easiest way to get that is to be a public or a student um, in Ottawa and to do what are called FSWEPs, Federal Student Work Experience Programs. Um, just basically to accrue months of experience in the federal public service before you ever apply to any jobs because you'll immediately be um, sort of bumped uh, up in terms of priority and qualifications, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then the, I mean, the other thing that is uh, a hurdle to a lot of people getting jobs initially in Ottawa, um, this only applies to the, largely at a public service, but also at the ministerial level a little bit. Um, is security clearances and the best way to get a security clearance uh, in Ottawa if you are unaffiliated with anyone is to sign up with a staffing firm like Excel HR or many of the other ones that sort of uh, are around town and do the sort of external contractor security clearance program uh, to get either a reliability or a secret level clearance. Um, That way you can be bridged into jobs immediately without that being a consideration. Otherwise, if you're and I've had to go through this. Um, if you're trying to find a job <laughs> in the, <laughs> it was funny because I had one, but it just wasn't the right one. Yes. Um, <laughs> if you're trying to get a job in the federal government and you don't have a clearance, people won't hire you. At the ministerial level, they happen much quicker than at uh, many public service or contract level positions. Um, so it's less of a factor there, but it can still be an impediment. Um, I have, yeah, I, I can talk about this for an hour. Um, as I feel like I've approached it. And folks, from, and folks, he has. <laughs> as I feel like I've approached <laughs> the industry from many different angles over my uh, my seven years in Ottawa, as well as, you know, knowing all sorts of people who've had to enter the industry in various ways. So 
I, I have lot, lots, lots to say on that. Yeah. I mean, on the political side, I would just say, like, definitely the first thing to do is, like, do some volunteering with a political party just to see if you can stand the people, etc. Like, get a, a taste for it. And frankly, it's just like... You, you, like answering the why do you want to work here question is pretty important when it, cause, I mean because a lot of jobs the why do you want to work here question is the, the answer is obviously like because I want to get paid uh, <laughs> however for political staffers that like honestly is not true because for the most part you you like if you are talented enough to work on Parliament Hill and do a good job you're talented enough to make more money off the hill uh, I think I, I in 90% of jobs um so you need to have an answer to that uh, because it's a job that asks a lot of you um, and you need to think about if you really want to do it. Uh, and I would say that that's a really important thing. Like, the, the, let me tell you, like this year, uh, it not, did not feel prestigious. <laughs> like, how, you know, you're working at home the same as everyone else. And uh, yeah, shorn of the trappings, it's a, it's a job like many others. Uh, but with, you know, like more demanding hours, less pay and, uh, you know, a, a very ruthless, uh, sort of turnaround required on a lot of things. So yeah, like, you know, I would say politics is very rewarding. Uh, and certainly like in, in, in my time working in politics, like I, I think there are some real things I can point to for the rest of my life and say that, that was important and I'm glad I was a part of it. Um, but yeah, it, it's definitely not something that you do because you think it, it sounds kind of neat or you think it's going to pay off for you because the odds of that are not ones I would bank on basically. Let, let me just pick up on one point that you made in your very pessimistic, uh, not <laughs> no, pessimistic. I just, I just think it, it requires commitment. I, I think you want to think through if you actually want to do it. Cause there, look, if you want to do a cool job that pays well, like there are tons of others. Uh, yes, and you, you don't have to spend as much time in the public eye, etc. Like it's just but that yeah, that calculation the calculation is different from a party that is in opposition versus a party in government because a party in government the experiences of a minister's office and the number of positions everything is a vastly different calculation. Um, but the one element I would pick up on from what you sort of led with was about volunteering. I actually, so I got my initial position on the Hill via a uh, Conservative Party internship. Um, and I was actually initially waitlisted for that. And I think it was in due in large part because I had no volunteer experience with the party. Um, I had sort of almost conscientiously tried to avoid student politics um, and student political groups uh, when I was in my bachelor's degree. Um, and that was a hindrance. Uh, I think I eventually got pulled from that wait list because I spoke French and they needed someone who spoke French. Um, so Yahtzee for that because... That, oh, that's another one. Speak that, French. Yeah. That's what launched my <laughs> career. Um, but most people in those programs have... Most people in the internships, most people who get hired on the Hill uh, start, the, uh, start their political experience in the somewhat derogatory envelope liquor category. Um, that is someone who shows up and licks envelopes and sends mailers and door knocks and does all of those things, you know, volunteering. It's essential work. It really is. Someone's got to do it. is a very real currency in politics and people are very appreciative of those who do it. And, uh, there's generally two camps of volunteers, students and seniors. Uh, seniors are not looking for the jobs generally. Um, so stu <laughs> students tend to find yeah. their way. Um, through the party apparatus and there's lots of what I, lots of yeah. staff i know on the hill who started as young conservatives young liberals young dippers etc and i i would say personally i would much rather someone who has knocked on a thousand doors than someone who has you know been a president of a student club you know yes like just i, I think the, the doing rather than being is is very important I, I don't know if that's true for everyone and i'm sure the connections probably help but certainly it's a uh it's a very much you you have to carry your own weight. Uh, so yeah, yeah, you don't need to. People who have a demonstrated track record of being willing to do things uh, for no money <laughs> and you know not very prestigious work is to me a, that's a that that's good. That's a good sign. Com commitment to the cause <laughs> is like lo exactly. loyalty is well, yeah, first exactly. and foremost in politics and uh, hours and hours of volunteer labor for little compensation is a demonstration of that loyalty. Indeed. Um, I, I want to, I'm going to go slightly out of order again, because I think this is an important one that ties into what we were just talking about. 
what is the biggest delusion people have before arriving in Ottawa? And I presume this means to, you know, work in politics in some capacity or another. So, or at least that's how we're going to respond to the question. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's several <laughs> of these questions. We'll take how we want to take them. Um, so I, I don't really know how to answer that question. Um, you know, I think a lot of people think Ottawa is a much bigger place than it is. Um, yeah, that was that's kind of where I it's was. It's a my very small place. You know, once you've been here for a few years, it almost seems like you've seen everyone. Um, at, at least, you probably at least have. on the political side, like Ottawa has different like yeah. communities. The public service is one. The, the tech industry in Ottawa is another. Um, but the political and GR world, which go hand in hand, um, basically the people who go to receptions on Parliament Hill, um, is fairly small. And after going to a few, you start to see the same faces and sort of connect some dots. Um, other than that, I mean, I think... When I came, I wondered, like, why I would ever be hired into a Hill office or an MP's office or anything like that? Like, I felt like I was vastly unqualified for it with my bachelor's degree in political science. Um, but little did I realize that a lot of people working on the Hill have quit midway through their bachelor's degrees um, to take up work and aren't necessarily, you know, congressional style specialists in some sort of policy area um, that a lot of people do get their start just you know, through hard work and dedication to the cause uh, rather than some sort of expertise. But if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, I expect that that shouldn't come as a surprise to you. Um, but I did not have the luxury of a of an awesome uh, specialist politics podcast before I came to Ottawa. Yeah, I, I think I would largely agree with that. It's just that I think it's very much in, in some ways a Potemkin village. Uh, there is a lot less to it than meets the eye. <laughs> like, no, but in the sense that, like, I think people imagine that, like, oh, what does Party X think about this, right? And the reality is that, like, Party X probably hasn't thought about that. Uh, and when you ask them, they go ask, like, two or three people who kind of go, like, hmm, let me get back to you about it. Uh, and then you, they kind of come back with a couple sentences, and that's and that becomes what Party X thinks about that. Like, there just is not, like, a deep deliberation engine that is like you know select you know writing policies down on stone tablets uh for for different political parties it's just there there are not the bodies for that yeah canadian um, political apparatus particularly between elections exists to fundraise like that's it yes they bait they trim down to the fundraisers and like in some cases a comms person in some cases not a comms person um and that's sort of it. I mean, more it's less true of the larger parties. Obviously, this is a sliding scale. Um, but yeah. there isn't, like, dedicated policy staff sitting at, you know, the CPC headquarters, like, thinking of policies for the next election. No, there are, are, there are staff in the, the sort of caucus services slash leader's office. Uh, and there are staff in MPs' offices. And that is pretty much it. Uh, there, and then there's a, a small universe of think tanks and sort very, of associated other people. Very, very small. small. But that's the thing. Is the amount of policy that gets done in Ottawa compared to the amount of policy that gets done in Washington, D.C. Like, we, we are talking, like, orders of magnitude difference. Like, hundreds or thousands of times yes. more in D.C. than <laughs> yes. in Ottawa. Like, I, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say there is probably in the thousands times more volume of policy work produced annually in and around Washington, D.C. than in Ottawa. I mean, I would also add... A, it's just like, it's not comparable. A lot of the think tanks um, around Ottawa are also Potemkin villages um, in that the people you see... <laughs> yeah, that's true. It really, it really is facades all the way down. <laughs> I mean, the people that you see listed on the websites have very loose affiliations the number of full-time staff at these organizations, like the most well-known... You're talking like a half dozen. In Canada. Yeah. Um, like some of these people it, have And that's not to say the work is bad. The work is good, but it's like a half dozen people. Yeah, some of these, some yeah. of the people listed on the websites have obligations to write like one or two pieces for that organization and basically it goes on their CV. Um, yeah. As opposed to in DC, there are large buildings full of people um that yes. work for you know think tank x they do the affiliated stuff too right like that also exists but it's just they also have like several dozen people that are like full-time staffers that work on you know, policy policy full-time as a yeah. full-time staff of that think tank 
And like, yeah, just that is just not a thing that let, exists. Let me here. just throw some out, right? Like, uh, McDonald Laurier Institute, uh, to my knowledge, has staff that like leadership staff and uh, like comms and membership staff, but they don't have full time thinkers like on staff paid salary. Canada 2020 does not, to my knowledge, they they contract people for papers and things along those lines. Is uh, I mean, they call themselves a, a do tank, not a think tank. Or, or yeah. they have at some point. <laughs> I, I would say that the CCPA, the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives, and apologies, those are my chickpeas going off in the instant pot there. Uh, the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives has several people on staff who are actual policy people. Um, I think Fraser does at least a few. Yes, Fraser definitely uh, it, has a yeah. few economists. Um, I don't know, but it's if not it's a lot of people. Five or ten. Yeah. Otherwise, I would say that where you see like policy people is uh oh well, actually a lot of the gr organizations and and sort of broader like the the unions and uh sort of chamber of commerce type organizations have a not tiny amount of policy people compared to other parts of ottawa but that it's not a big universe all that to say yeah fair enough and when you when you see the people on the panel shows talking at you know the end of the day about what they think of an issue that there was not that much process going into <laughs> what they are saying <laughs> at least from a policy perspective no i yes yeah. it is often uh reflex reflexive here yeah. here's what it is yes uh so i yeah i think the biggest delusion people have about ottawa is that there is a lot of policy being done behind the scenes and a lot of careful considerate work and i would say there there's a lot less of it than maybe you would hope <laughs> And that that is really not to devalue the, the hard work that people do. It's just that I think people imagine that there is a lot more of it. Correct. Yeah. Uh, what is the worst beer of the year? Um, have you tried the beer I dropped off to your place yesterday? I haven't yet. <laughs> is, it, is it not great? It's not that bad. Um, well, I, I could go. I just finished my, my lovely Sumac IPA from Dominion City. I could go pop it up. It is not that bad, but it's not good not your best i would say it's drinkable but it's probably the worst beer i've ever made um well, which important. is you're really selling it, it well thanks for giving me a bottle i mean i have 20 liters <laughs> of it i need to offload on people um it's the most complicated beer i ever tried to make um i made oh is this the one with the fruit that you tried yes it is a, is a, okay. a fruited milkshake ipa uh it used six different types of hops um, it used peaches and raspberries in vastly too little. Um, well, do you, want, do you want to explain a little bit about the differences in how much fruit people expect go into these? Speaking of, while we're while we're tearing down the Potemkin villages, <laughs> you want to explain how much fruit goes into these beers? I'm gonna go actually open that bottle and I'll be okay, right. Okay, I'll, I'll try and keep keep talking until Laurent gets back. Uh, so I was brewing a batch. You brew a 20 liter batch, which is you know a reasonable amount of beer. Um, I figured when I started fruiting the beer that I would dump in one of those like freezer bags that you get from the store of raspberries and one of the freezer bags of peaches. And that worked out to be maybe 800 grams of fruit for 20 liters of beer. It turns out the actual ratio of proper beer from like Bellwoods or something is like a quarter of the beer is fruit. Um, well, I will say it so smells peachy. I was less than 20 to 1 when it should have been 1 to 4. I think you undersold that. It's not bad at all. I, I said it's the worst beer I've made so far. And the, like, and the color fairness, is we, off. We have made, because it's... generally speaking, pretty good beer. The color is kind of unnerving. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It looks like sort of hazy apple juice because there are actually apples in there because it was supposed to be a hazy beer, but the color's wrong because we used uh, liquid malt extract instead of either all grain or dried malt extract. It's a whole thing, um, but there you have it. It smells good. Like, it has a, a good peach nose to it, so... I would say you're selling yourself a little short here, but it's not the worst beer I've had all year. I don't know what the worst beer I've had all year is. To be honest, this has been a year where I, I've been thankful for any beer that, I, that I've gotten down my gullet. <laughs> I've uh, done several recently from the uh, beer advent calendar we ordered from a local brewery. Um, but it's not it's not strictly that brewery's beer. It's from sort of all throughout the, uh, the Ottawa region. I think it goes as far as Kingston area. Uh, and several of them have just been strange. And like, not like... 
I think they're attempts at classic styles, but they have got the dump. So the latest one that I'm drinking today is not too bad for to- Whippersnapper. Toilet flush dot wave. If I had a good radio DJ button for that. <laughs> Just, uh, once once again, a thing I probably will not add. Yes, we, we need a soundboard yet. of sort of recurring <laughs> jokes. That would be good. Um, so next question. Uh, well, this isn't really a question, but it's a, so, so a question someone asked via iTunes review, which of course you can leave on our uh, pod, on your podcast app of choice. Francophone content? Question uh, <laughs> mark. Why don't we do a French episode, Laurent? You tell me. I mean, I'd be happy to. My my dad would be thrilled. As as would mine. Well, yeah, I, so there you what go. was actually in the <laughs> the iTunes is, aren't you both French? Um, to which the answer is yes, but no. Yeah, we are we are both uh, of francophone extraction, and both spoke French at home to varying degrees growing up. Um, so I guess like yes. I mean, in my in my case, I like my first language actually was French growing up. Uh, like both my parents are francophones they learn english as adults um i grew up in a bilingual neighborhood in montreal well grew up i moved in 06 um but i was exposed to both languages young uh and then when we moved to the states uh my parents made a lot of effort so that i would keep my french which they would always always said i would thank them for even when i complained about having french lessons on friday afternoons in high school (laughs) Uh, Dad explains why your French is better than me is because you went to Friday (laughs) afternoon French lessons in high school. Oh, there you go. And uh, no, I did keep it up and I I would still say my French is is quite good. Um, Like I'm fully bilingual, but yeah, uh, Etan, I think your story is slightly different. Uh, So I grew up in northern Alberta, uh, Fort McMurray. Um, Not known for its French. Speaking French at home um, with my father. Um, went to a francophone school um, that existed apparently in uh, Fort McMurray until grade five, uh, but in grade six I transitioned into a English only education. Did not do much French education in high school, um, and only took French in university to get my second language credits that were required for my bachelor's degree. Um, after deciding that I didn't want to learn Italian. Um, because Italian was, <laughs> was too hard. The proper nouns were too hard. Um, so speak French conversationally. Uh, my written French is horrible. And my technical French is somewhat stunted at a grade five level. Um, unless it's something I have heard, uh, you know, a topic that I become familiar with. One of the first words I remember um, learning in Ottawa when I came here was Asien Combatant, um, which translated literally is somewhat a hilarious term for veterans. Former fighter, ancient fighters, yes. Well, ancien yeah, I know, I know, I know, yeah. I know, I know. Not a combatant ancien, <laughs> which would be, in fact, like an old fighter. Yes, word order matters there. Uh, so all that to say that we will not be producing episodes in French anytime soon because I think uh, Etienne would look a, a, a touch foolish. <laughs> <laughs> No, yeah, we're, yeah. we're just, yeah. we're just but we're not going to do it. No. Um, let's see. Let's see. How adequate is federal COVID nineteen fiscal aid for municipalities? And the, here again is where I wish I had that toilet flush sound. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so just off the top of my head, I'm trying to remember what the amount FCM. So FCM is the lobby group that represents um, Canadian municipalities in Ottawa. Um, it's basically it is the federation of canadian yeah it's, it's basically all of them i'm not aware of any noticeable abstentions or sort of revolutions from fcm um fun ottawa facts fcm is seen as somewhat of a uh, a retirement home for ndp staffers a lot of ndp folk and uh end up at uh the federation for canadian municipalities municipalities by their nature tend to be more left-wing organizations um you know because they're governments what because the municipalities are governments? No, because urban center, like large urban centers. Well, but th- that's the thing, though, is the FCM covers like it does, 90% it does of include rural population. It's a lot of small but it's, towns. I think it's weighted to the uh, the big city mayors or the big whatever cities. it is. Yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, yeah there, there are obviously strictly numbers, more little municipalities yeah. from. You know, Rob Ford was mayor of Toronto, right? 
Yes, and John Tory is today, but let's look at the mayor of Vancouver and elsewhere to make a holistic picture of what the mayors um, look like. They're mostly... But in in the country south of us, there's, you know, a very similar dynamic where all virtually all of the large cities are run by Democrats. Um, yes. You know, not not entirely dissimilar uh, as in the, the case in the, Canada. Like the fourth largest city in Indiana, for instance. Um, sh- sh- what? I don't even know what that is. What? Mayor Pete. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Secretary Pete. Uh, so all of that is to say, I mean, the municipalities are creatures of provincial governments. And so the federal government during its COVID relief was targeting individuals and businesses. Um, and so it glossed over a lot of the... Well, and, and provinces is worth saying. Well, do, yes. do you have an example? That you, well, <laughs> the $14 billion whatchamadillion. Well, fund. and also like the... the the financing facilities uh, that, for instance, staved off a bankruptcy in Newfoundland. Sure, that's that's <laughs> in the weeds, really. I don't think. Yeah, that's but a, it's important. A, like a province not going bankrupt is, as as a is, share of COVID relief. I think that's very minimal. Um, but you know, it is obviously important. Um, but all of that is to say, I think the federal government has had, particularly during the COVID time was spending nine to one or eight to one what provincial governments were spending. And it had a lot of trouble justifying um, giving dollars directly to um, creatures of provinces, including municipalities. So it's worth saying that municipalities, you know, deliver a lot of services directly. Their tax revenues got completely gutted and demand for services in a lot of cases increased. uh, And they were left to and they can't run uh, deficits in the vast majority of cases, I think. Uh, so they were left, you know, uh, as the the little Dutch boy with his uh, his finger in the the hole in the dike, uh, with a lot more than they could actually, uh, a lot more holes than they had fingers. Let's put it that way. Uh, so big big problem there. Uh, so not not so good for the municipalities, and I don't really think that they are fully back on their feet uh, in a lot of ways. I, I haven't seen I think... a lot of news recently about municipalities or about municipalities asking for or seeking further funding from the federal government that sort of died off. The big um, ask from the uh, from the FCM was a doubling of the gas tax transfer, yeah. which is a financing mechanism the government uses, federal government to give uses infrastructure to money fund municipalities to. pretty, more or less directly. Yeah. Uh, it's not technically, but yeah, yeah, it's fine. So let's leave municipalities there. What's next? Uh, if either of you were made Queen of Canada for a day, how would you reform ATIP? Um... Let me give you a... I, I think being prime minister would be more, like, operative here. Yeah, to be honest. Yes, <laughs> actually, that is a very fair point, as the Queen of Canada would do absolutely nothing and not even think about Canada for a day. Um, no. But if I were the executive in charge of Canada, um, I mean, there's two answers. One, the easiest one would be give it more money. Um, would be how you would improve ATIP services most immediately. Yes. Um, but I a fond pet idea of mine is like resetting some of the outlandish ATIP queues. Um, for instance, the RCMP in some cases, I've been waiting for an ATIP from the RCMP for five years um, that I've heard nothing about. Um, so if you have a five-year wait list for something, the odds of you just needing a hard reset instead of continuing to process five-year-old ATIPs um, is out there it's it certainly there's a fair argument to be made just refund everyone the five dollars and say if you're still really interested in this um resubmit um but if you have an organization that's under like a five-year-old backlog where nothing is happening and you know it's 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 not benefiting anyone to process five-year-old atip requests like they yeah, they, they email people and say are you still interested in this and hope and pray that you don't respond um, so that they yes. can remove you from the list. But I responded and said, yes. Uh, if only as an exercise I, in futility, I want to see how long this ATIP takes. <laughs> so the the big change here, and it's, it's worse, in American politics, much more so than in Canadian politics, Where? there's a concept called an, un, un, <laughs> there's a concept called an unfunded mandate, uh, which is to say mm-hmm. that government takes on new responsibilities uh, without any funding to sort of make that a reality. I think in some degree that's kind of what happened with the ATI system when we moved to the $5 filing fee. 
there used to be sort of uh, attendant fees if it was going to require a lot of work that you would pay some amount of money to you know make copies process whatever um at any rate there was more of like a you had to invest more up front to get documents. Yeah, it covered costs. Since we moved... The, the point was yeah, it covered costs, and now it's a cost sink. And, and yes. Without it's funding itself. any new real resources to actually meet what would become new demand uh, for, for access information. So I do think that there has to be... People always say funding the information commissioner's office, which I say, okay... Uh, and I, I'm not against it, but I think fundamentally the offices that actually do the processing of access information requests probably need like new people to cope with the new reality that filing an access information request is easier than ever. Yeah, funding funding uh, the ATIP cop can only go so far if the yeah because if it's just if it's just impossible for uh, you know and I, I file requests routinely and I'm very aware that many of them are not trivial uh, and I I think that government Departments should be empowered to comply with, to the extent of the law, insofar as is like you know feasible and, and fiscally responsible. I think that it's an important thing. And contra Minister Haidu, I think people do care about government transparency and how fast uh, they can get these things. Um, so no, I, I think fundamentally uh, cost is is a big factor here. The other one I would say is I, I think the Information Commissioner appeal model is a bit broken. Uh, in the States, once again, uh, the model there actually is probably a little more functional where you can just go to court much more quickly. Um, here, you basically have to exhaust your channels with the information commissioner, which can often also require several years. Um, so you can be waiting for an institution to process documents for a very, very long time. And then you can file a complaint with the information commissioner, at which point you will be waiting some time for it to be uh what's the word tasked to an investigator the investigator will investigate and then you are at that point you know potentially many many years from when you initially filed it and the information is very likely no longer pertinent at that point the the foia process in the u.s where if you don't get your documents you can go to court and then you get them i think makes a lot of sense i, I don't know that that would be necessarily the best thing but certainly there needs to be some way to expedite uh requests and make sure that people are kind of uh getting things when they need them so that's my take thank you for that here here i i I file a lot of requests so i I have a lot of thoughts on this. i have filed (laughs) i think it was greater or less than one it is an actual request and not old records or already released records requests i think i've only filed Probably less than on, on on a hand, maybe. My my over under I think is probably like one fifty. Only? No, actually probably more like two hundred. Okay. Yeah. Over the last three years or so. Yeah. That sounds about right. Uh next question. What role does regionalism play in the Ottawa bubble? Lots of people have focused on cabinet ministers not being from the West, but do political staffers or senior public servants skew towards having your favorite topic grown up <laughs> near the NCR, National Capital Region? Um, does it matter to have regional representation in an organization, whether a political office or a public service bureaucracy? Um, short answer, yes. Yes, absolutely it does. Um, how do political staff skew? Um, there is, without a doubt, always going to be a bias to the NCR. I, I, you have to take that as a given for an area that, um, you know, be, more people who work in Ottawa are going to come from Ottawa than anywhere else, sort of as a starting point. Um, politics runs in some people's family, as does public service. You know, there are notable public servants yeah, who are the and- children of former public servants. Um, and it, it that can is also very true across the, Ottawa. Yeah, it can also alluded to the FSWEP program, uh, which is much, much easier to participate in if you are a student at the University of Ottawa or Carlson University. We, and, you know, people come from all over the country to go to those universities, but at the same time, if you're someone who went to university somewhere else, you don't have the same access to FSWEP programs as people here. So that is actually a really good point, is to break it down, not just from the NCR, but specifically to those two universities, being Carleton and University of Ottawa. Like, both of them have programs that basically funnel people into the civil service. 
um, GSPA at uh, University of Ottawa being their international affairs program and the equivalent at Carleton uh, being NIPSIA, uh, Norman Patterson yeah. School of International Affairs. Toronto has sort of an equivalent, Monk, um, but the Monk School, you know, in my experience around Ottawa, doesn't funnel nearly as many people into Ottawa, into the Ottawa bureaucratic sort of apparatus, um, in sure. part because they're not around to get the Ottawa jobs for their co-ops, for their FSWEPs while they're in school, for their internships, all of the rest of that. So there really is a dynamic where these two schools basically staff up a huge amount of the civil service, um, which, you know, any, any absence of diversity is bad. Um, and so having everyone channeled through two universities is certainly a challenge that needs to be considered. Um, and, you know, there's network effects, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but on the regionalism component of it, I mean, I am one of a few Albertans I've met in Ottawa. There are not a ton of Albertans who go, you know, particularly when oil was booming, who get on a plane to head to Ontario um, to find work rather than find work in their home province. Um, and people from different parts of the countries inherently have different views. People from rural areas have different views than urban areas. Um, so I would say that regionalism 100% is a, um, you know, a factor for consideration. I would say it's not well considered across um, the public service. There aren't a lot of mechanisms for allowing that sort of consideration and deliberation. Um, you know, no one asks you during the interview process um, where you're from, really, and what sort of views you're bringing to it. It's just, do you tick you know, the boxes of experience and the people who take the boxes of experience are people who've been in the NCR for longer. Um, yeah. The other, you know, the other huge um, element that bears mentioning is uh, the perennial question of language requirements um, as to there are a lot of Quebecois people in the public service, um, often at sort of disproportionate to other provinces in part because they have the bilingual requirements that are instrumental. The, it's called a CCC, which is being very bilingual, the triple C rating. Um, but they often don't flow up to the higher levels of the civil service. There aren't a lot of uh, Quebecois people in the senior roles. Um, well, at junior roles, there anyone who's anglophone only has a lot of trouble with their career if they didn't grow up in an area like Ottawa where they have sort some sort of basic level yeah. of French. Um, yeah. And how does an Albertan who grew up in rural Alberta get a CCC level French sure. um, in order to qualify for high level career advancement? And it's just... And I, I think that that's, it's entirely fair to say that like linguistic uh, advantages are, are, are a real thing. I would also say that there's a culture in English Canada of and in the States too, which is operational. Like I, I took Spanish in high school because that was what was offered um that language courses and instruction is kind of considered a blow-off frankly yeah uh like it's very rare that that parents and education systems take second language education seriously and i think you know people are, are right to point out that like oh well i took you know however many years of french but i don't really retain anything from it yeah I, I think it's 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 reasonable to ask at that point since it is such a systemic thing I hear from so many people. It's like, well, clearly something is not working with second language instruction in English Canada uh, when no one or, you know, a very, very small proportion of people come away with an actual working knowledge of the French language despite having studied it for, in many cases, you know, 10 plus years. Um, I, I don't necessarily think that, like, we need to like instill every single member of society with a perfect knowledge of, of the French language. But I do think there's clearly a disconnect here between what people are taking away and what's going into um, French language instruction. I mean, in a lot of Western Canada, it's, it's not something you're going to use every day. That, that's right? it. Like, right. It's like, when it will is... I ever need French? And then, yes. But then the reality is that, well, if you want to work in the federal civil service, you, you will need it. You you will need uh, it, but you didn't have the foresight to pay attention in French class in a French class yeah. that has low priority in terms of education and emphasis and everything well, else. Yeah. And your peers are screwing around in um, over your K to 12 education, right? hundred percent. Um, no, it's, it's a real problem. And I, I, I'm sympathetic to people who, who, you know, work hard and want to get their French levels up and everything, but just didn't have a good base because look, I was a, 
frankly quite a bad high school student <laughs> and if, if for instance calculus levels were a requirement for the uh the federal public service or in politics done you cut off shit out, <laughs> i i would be pretty much shit out of luck you know uh so it's uh no like look and it's, and it's not because of you know any lack of initiative as an adult it's because i screwed around in math classes in high school and uh you know that i was lucky that uh, i have a facility with languages and etc like it's just like that's the way the the sort of talent tree apples fell um yeah so no it's it's unfortunate but and i think like we could do better in uh in making sure that people from you know different parts of the country are represented in the civil service i i also think you know the reality is that we are a territorial federation um with consociational elements and the consociational elements being represented largely by the language requirements, but we don't do a great job at representing the territorial diversity. So our second to last question, uh, why don't we get great in the room political gossip like the Americans? Oh, that's the question. That's the question. Um, like the who? Like, oh, yes. <laughs> um... So my, my first inclination was just to say that every it's easier to point fingers in Canada because there are less people in the room. But that's perhaps a partial explanation. And I, I, I don't know enough about, you know, comparable Let's... size governments elsewhere and how much leaking there is. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a cultural thing. And I think cultural things are hard to explain in any sort of short, um, you know, easy way. If there is a culture that is developed over time of leaking going on and being permissible in a in a way that hasn't developed in another jurisdiction, um, then it becomes a thing. But in Canada, leakers, for the most part, you know, all the leaks and I, I think for people who are unfamiliar with it would say, you know, there is a lot of leaking in Canadian media. You know, on Sunday I saw that Doug, there was leaks that Doug Ford was going to um, impose a lockdown across Southern Ontario. Um, that was coming from unnamed government sources, right? The reality oh, I, yeah, is I remember. that most, <laughs> <laughs> but most of that style of leaking is like government sanctioned leaking. Yes. Um, you know, Jerry Butts was incredibly well known for this, that, you know, senior liberal government sources was almost always Jerry Butts. Um, if you just read between the lines. Um, but the, the genuine sort of counter like administration level yeah. leaking or like juicy gossip style can, leaking can I... doesn't doesn't happen a lot and there's in a very simple reason for that is because usually when oh, there you are a very leaks, simple reason i have the, i have the complex cultural well, that's the thing is though is you you mentioned in the room and i would say in canada we have fewer rooms because there was less negotiation because there doesn't have to be as much negotiation because our system is usually run by majority governments um and when it's not the discussions tend to be less granular than they are at the it, the american level where there they're negotiating over you know the contents of various bills at an extremely granular is it going to be this much amount of money or that much amount of money i really don't think that happens much in canada uh comparatively certainly uh where that's going to have to happen in basically every bill passed by the u.s congress in sort of a concert between house senate and uh white house so there are more parties Fair. in the room and there are more occasions for them to be in a room together. And the stuff they're deciding in those rooms is at a much finer level of detail. So Okay, but let, let, me, let me challenge you on that because I don't think that's... I think you're right, but I don't think that's necessarily a fair representation of the question. I, I would also say Which, that there's always an interest in leaking where here... Um, and a lot of parties that have an interest in leaking where here... When you're negotiating, for instance, uh, like with the, the government over the course of the pandemic aid negotiations, there are other parties that are also going to be looking to get things out of them for their own purposes. And if you burn the government by leaking stuff about a negotiation, why would they come back to you instead of going to one of the other two parties that they can reach a deal with? Sure, but let me give you the example of just 
strictly at the executive level, sure. right? After every Trump meeting, it seems like we get the juicy gossip of what was said in the meeting. You know, he's going to hire a special counsel for election fraud. There is some of that that exists in the Ottawa bubble um, around executive level discussion in Canada, but it virtually never makes its way into media, um, if ever. Um, there are very few anecdotes that circulate in the media as to what, you know, Justin Trudeau was thinking in a meeting with Michael Wernick, et cetera, yeah. right? Uh, well, I guess... Yeah, unless we were recording his phone but... calls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but once upon a time. Um, so that level of, like, executive branch leaking doesn't really occur. And, I mean, the other factor I would attribute it to is there's a lot more sort of both independent-minded people, but people with various agendas within the executive administration in the United States um, than there is in Canada, where in Canada there's a much more team player approach to things. Um, I, I would know The teams know are more one, cohesive, for sure. Like, it's... Um, yeah. yeah, it's... The Democratic Party I would know and the one Republican exception Party are to very that. big organizations with a lot of people who think very different things. That's not really as much the case with the Liberal Party of Canada, the Conservative Party, etc. They're much more leader-defined organizations, and if you're on the outs with the leader, you're going to have a tough time. I would note one exception to that that I sort of point to as like a executive v. executive leaking situation in Canada, um, and that was Morneau upon his exit. Um, it seemed like there were some Morneau loyalists who were leaking the MCAP stuff. That's a good point. Um, yeah. Pushing back on the prime minister's office. And that is one of the only examples I can think of in recent history of sort of an intra-executive spat. Yes. Oh, that's a good point. Um, and, that, and that has sort of stemmed and we haven't heard anything more about yeah. it. Um, so for the last question, I think this is a question many people have asked over the years. Uh, so we wanted to, to give it a, the, the last question treatment. <laughs> Uh, the question is, I'm under the impression you come from different sides of the political spectrum, NDP and conservative, but for the most part, you tend to be in agreement for the topics discussed on the pod. What is a political issue that you both vehemently disagree on? Would you like to open? Would, would you like to take that or would you like me sure. to take that? I would start by saying that I think listening to us debate things rather than kind of working towards exploring details of questions we find interesting makes for better listening not debating rather i i, I think it's, yeah, it's not the like opposite. look you can ask uh either of the the mrs short pants you can ask any of our mutual friends <laughs> it is actually not that much fun to listen to us argue about things uh we certainly have done no shortage over of it over the years uh we do it all the time uh, we just don't really save it for the podcast because, as I mentioned, it doesn't make for great listening. Um, but yeah. I mean, it was very consciously a model that we rejected at the yes. start. Was in, in fact, I think in the Twitter bio. Emphatically bios not Crossfire. It still, still says that. Emphatically not Crossfire. Um, could be replaced by emphatically not Oppo. Yes. Well, um, even then they The agree point was. <laughs> I haven't listened to Neither it. Really <laughs> um, the point was very much not to have a podcast of two people yelling at each other over, you know, well-established yeah. positions of the left and the right. I mean, right look, hand, if you right? want that, that, come get a beer with us predictable. sometime and we'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is predictable. Um, and it's already out there in sort of the media sphere. You can watch, uh, you know, the pundits every night do a very comparable thing, yes. right? And no one is smarter um, for it at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I would say is that, so to, to address the question kind of a slightly more in depth, I would say that Etienne and I have a the, the good fortune of having the issues that we each care about not be one that the other person like really cares about at an ideological level as much. Um, so for instance, like from my point of view, something I'm really interested in is, uh, like expansion of cooperatives. Um, and Etienne, to my knowledge, his position on that is that he thinks that's fine. <laughs> like, so it just, there isn't that much for us to argue about there. Uh, and when it comes to Etienne's stuff where, uh, Mr. C51 over there, uh, it's just <laughs> like... We kind of disagree, but it's not that interesting a disagreement, and it's been litigated to hell in, in media and, and everywhere else, like, all the time. So it's just like, I just don't really know where 
us talking about it adds anything to the broader public conversation about it. And, and I mean, the other thing I would say is in terms of doing it in relation to um, parliamentary proceedings or, you know, the most latest legislation, I, I don't think a strong format for the show is taking a bill from the government and taking a left-wing and a right-wing stance on why that bill is either good or bad and sort of debating the merits of the bill, right? One of the things we've tried to do somewhat conscientiously is focus not so much. I mean, we do have big picture policy conversations from time to time, um, but is not sort of the abstract policy conversation, but more the tangible, what is actually going in going on in Ottawa. And sort of, as we discussed earlier, the Potemkin village that is, you know, policy deliberation in Ottawa um, broadly doesn't exist. And these aren't the conversations that are happening in Ottawa. Um, They're much more along the lines of how does this get passed? What are the negotiations? What's the push pull? Uh, What are the various factors that are going into these votes? Who are the actors? Who's lobbying for what? All of the rest of that, rather than, you know, universal pharmacare, good or bad. Yeah. I, I would say, so to come to the actual question, which is what is a political issue that you both vehemently disagree on, I would say the the, the role of civil liberties versus uh, security state is one that I think we have a pretty deep disagreement on. I don't, would you agree with that? Yeah. No. Okay, well, there uh, you go. <laughs> I, we, we, we haven't had that conversation recently. I'm not sure if uh, I've swayed you since our last one, so... I'll presume that you haven't changed your opinion. Uh, you, you presume correctly. Um, no, I mean, yeah, questions of foreign policy, um, you know, uh, fairly large economic questions, um, as you would expect. Yeah, I mean, like, like um, not to put too fine a coat of paint on it, it's like I, I am a, a socialist and Etienne is not. I think that that is a fairly large point of disagreement between us on you know, who, who should own the, the means of production in the economy. <laughs> the means of production, if you will, is, yes. uh, is a fairly deep one. But it's just like at some point it's not really interesting to hear Etienne say, Oh, the problem with socialism is sooner or later you run out of other people's money. So, you know, <laughs> like it's just no one really wants to hear that. Uh, you know, the, the Ben Shapiro, Margaret Thatcher, proud tradition of, of, of right-wing dunks is just, you know, it's not that good. To be clear, not sure that that would have that would be my my immediate go to take, but uh, I'll, I'll let it slide Fair this enough. time. Um, yeah, I mean, we've found all sorts of ones, but we've also yeah, like, co- I mean, to use your example of co ops, I've often wondered, and I, I haven't, I admit, I haven't looked into it because it's not an issue of passion for me. Why co ops? What the right wing view of co ops really is depends who you ask, um, and it's not. Yeah. It, it's yeah, it's not one I have a very clear answer for. There are a lot of people I know in the Conservative Party, uh, or MPs, who are very yeah. The, the sort about, of the sort um, of Tory tradition, the unions, very populist right? tradition, is very much in favor. But the yeah, the more like Bay I, Street conservative position, not as much. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my inclination is to say, like, is there anything inherently bad about co ops? Uh, I certainly like, don't I can't, think so. I, I can't give you what's what's the Bay Street conservative it's answer less, it's to less why efficient, co-ops are right? Bad. Because I, I think the, the co-ops bring in considerations of you know bringing in but like if, democracy into into the economy where they think efficiency should be the overriding consideration for, for economic decision making. Sure, that that becomes like a strictly economic efficiency yeah. argument. But there are, I mean, there are a lot of strands of conservatism that are going. No, and I agree with that. That's why I think there are parts of the conservative party the... that are much more open to this idea that economic democracy is important in some sense. Yeah. Uh, though you know how sincere that is and how thoroughgoing that is are open questions. But there you go. Oh yeah, that has me think of a whole bunch of other arguments we've had in the past. But, uh, <laughs> The, oh, the David Cameron thing, of course, is one we've, we've discussed well, in the past. Yes, the uh, the big society versus yes. you know the, the role of the charitable sector, et cetera, et cetera, versus the role of government. Yes. You know, all, all of the usual points where you would expect tension. Um, they we just don't readily manifest those arguments um, for the purpose. Well, of and they don't come up the much. Also, has, has done has done badly lately. Yeah, I, I would say another um, one too is climate change. I, I would think I have a much more pessimistic view about technology uh presenting us with quasi-magical solutions and i think etienne is more confident that things like geoengineering will prove viable 
Uh, we've had a long-running believe, joke about the dust. In, believe in the, the dust. dust has been a long-running joke. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean um, these are like they're real, you know, political differences certainly, and uh, yeah, but it's just I I just think our points of agreement tend to be more interesting than our points of disagreement. Fair. Yeah. So there. I you mean, go. yeah, I I I don't have much to add there except the the dust will one day be necessary, <laughs> and you you will be you'll be thankful for the dust. And, and, yes. So all all that to say, if you'd like to hear us argue uh, when we are when we're all vaccinated and happy, uh, you can come have a beer with us, and you can hear us argue about any number of things until like all of our friends and acquaintances, you are entirely sick of hearing it. We've had uh, we've had friends of the show. Uh, be asked by listeners of the show if we are like this in real life. Yes. And invariably, they, they say yes, <laughs> and they say, no, I don't listen to the podcast because I hear it all the time. <laughs> yeah, we do. Yeah, no, that's uh, it's it's very accurate. So. So, su- such is life. Well, I think that will, that will do it for us this episode. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening, and, and certainly thank you for listening through this, this very tumultuous year. We hope that this podcast has brought you, you know, some some kind of edification or joy over the course of its measurable joy. It's four four year run now. Jesus Christ! Yeah, this is about the four year mark. Ooh. Um. Yeah. No, actually, now I think about it, this podcast time. began before the Trump administration started by about a month. Hell yeah, yeah! Jesus Christ! Wow, this has really been going a while. Um, four more yeah, years. Four more years. Four more years. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. Thanks again. It, it really, like, honestly, like, we, we do this because it's fun, and we would probably do it if half the people who listen to this podcast listen to it. Uh, but certainly, we, you know, it's it's kind of fun to watch the numbers go up. <laughs> uh, so, of course, you know, recommend to your friends and family if you if you think it's worth listening to. Uh, leave us a uh, a review. Uh, say hi on Twitter. Tell us you think the show is good. It's always nice. Um, and I think we'll probably just maybe make a reader mailbag an occasional thing we do. So feel free to send us questions and such in the interim, either via DM or at shortpantspod at gmail.com. And then we'll let them pile up. And when we kind of hit a critical mass, uh, we will, yes, we will we, all become we sand trout uh, along the golden path and uh, <laughs> <laughs> interrupt. Uh, Unfortunately, we, I should know we didn't get to everyone's questions. We did not. Um, regrettably as we spent at least 15 minutes on the first question (laughs) um but we hope to uh look forward to your questions again in 2021 very good well uh with some sort of moderna vaccine coursing through my yes just incredibly powerful hulking out from the vaccine (laughs) uh it'll be great uh yeah all that said and done uh thanks everyone again and bye-bye